Hey folks, Alex here. Nick and Elise are out of town this week, but fear not, we have another special episode for you that has been pre-recorded. As you can probably tell from the title, it's another interview, but this time we've also incorporated it into our regular episode. Think of it as an interview episode hybrid. Anyway, here's Some Nerds Have a Podcast. Enjoy. special episode of Some Nerds Have a Podcast. Uh, we have a special guest here today with us. Uh, Dr. Blumberg, would you introduce yourself, please? <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm Arnold T. Blumberg, and I wear many hats in pop culture. I've been a teacher, I've been an author and publisher, and uh, I'm sure we'll wind up talking about a lot of those things as we go forward, but uh, it's a pleasure to be here. All right. Pleasure to have you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, only once before have we had a guest on this show. Well, well <laughs> twice before, but it was the same person both times. So, uh, <laughs> so we're going to, uh, just kind of start off today just by talking with you a little bit, cause you've got a new book coming out as I understand it. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, I've and, been, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say you, so you run a publishing company, ATB Publishing. Um, so how did you f- go about, uh, founding that company or, or why did you found it, rather? Well, I've been working in publishing in one way or another for years, and it's just one of those things. I grew up a fan of a million different things, comics, science fiction, horror, all this stuff, but I've, I've always loved books and, and reading and collected books and comics, and one of my dreams was always to get to the point where I was actually publishing books that I would have wanted to have when I was a kid or a young person getting into all this kind of stuff. So eventually... I went to work at a publishing company that did uh, a comic book price guide, a number of collectible guides. I was an editor there for many years. And uh, then several things just kind of conspired to give me an opportunity to start my own company. And I'm very involved in the Doctor Who community. Um, And uh, one of the conversations that took place at one of the Doctor Who conventions was with a Dr. Robert Smith, who is... Uh, pretty huge in the zombie community too, which we'll talk about, but is also a Doctor Who author, and he pitched me an idea for a book that became a series of books called the Outside In Books, and uh, we started ATB Publishing doing that, uh, followed it up with a book that's our biggest one so far, a huge tome about the history of Doctor Who fandom in America called Red, White, and Who, and uh, we have a lot of things coming up, and the one that I'm working on right now is based on all the years that I've spent being a quote-unquote world-renowned zombie expert, which is something, <laughs> yeah, something that just kind of happened. And uh, so I'm wrapping up work on a book called Journey of the Living Dead, which is a tribute to 50 years of Night of the Living Dead and also 100 years of zombie cinema. Yeah, so the the, t- the full title of your next book is Journey of the Living Dead, A Tribute to 50 Years of Flesh Eaters. Is that right? That's right. That's so, right. Yeah. So so you're taking it from the release of Night of the Living Dead right, in 1968. Um, well, actually, the book the book goes back to the beginning. So okay. What I, White zombie? That's what, what I wanted what to I kind do, of clarify. What I do... The, the point is that this is the 50th anniversary year, and October 1st is actually the 50th anniversary date of the release of Night of the Living Dead. 
But since I've spent so many years teaching a, a college course in zombies and writing other books and articles and, and lecturing about it, the goal was to put a book together that used Night of the Living Dead and the anniversary as a way of putting it all in context and showing how the zombie has become such a powerful metaphor in pop culture. So the book goes all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century and the the very first zombie movies ever, and then it takes you up to Night of the Living Dead, and then we go beyond and look up to the present day. Right, because before... Night of the Living Dead is kind of unique in that it is the first time that zombies are kind of portrayed as being like mindless flesh eaters but there are zombies going all the way back i mean you might even say uh like cesar from captain of dr caligari as a zombie this is a man who knows his stuff because that, <laughs> I like because to think that, so. that is one of the movies that i specifically discuss at the beginning of the book as one of my proto zombie films so caligari is in there yep and and that's right and uh, and then there's another early film that I often talk about that's a French film called J'accuse. And uh, most of the movie has no bearing on, on zombies or horror at all, but there's a sequence where a group of soldiers, World War I soldiers, reanimate and rise up to get revenge. And in the original version of it, it's more like ghosts. But the guy who made that movie was sort of like the George Lucas of his day, and he remade the movie and tinkered with it for years. And when he did a 1938 version of it, he made them much more like zombies with skull faces. And uh, So we look at those kind of things, and you're absolutely right. Caligari is one of those early proto-forms of that. So... So what is it about, what do you think about the film Night of the Living Dead that kind of spawned the genre? Like, what was it about that movie that was so resonant that now, here we are 50 years later, you know, still talking about it, and basically people have not ever stopped trying to re-up that, like, you know, one-up that movie in many ways? Well, I will, I will avoid the very glib read the book answer for that. <laughs> it's not out yet, I would. And, and I will give you, I'll, I'll certainly give you one part of it. It's, it's, a, it's a very long, complicated answer, and hopefully my book covers a lot of that, but I'll give you one of the key ones. And really, in, in the end, maybe the only one that matters. The reason why is because of Dwayne Jones, mm. who plays Ben in, yeah. in the movie, and basically everything that that entails, from the fact that his role was originally written to be a white, simple-minded hillbilly trucker. And in comes Dwayne Jones, who is this elegant, erudite man who absolutely was going to reshape the part to his own personality, to the fact that he's a leading heroic figure and a black man in, at a time where the only other black actor who would get a lead role would be possibly Sidney Poitier. Um, and there is no minimizing the impact of that one factor uh, that explains so much of why Night of the Living Dead is important and why it had an impact. And of course, there are many other reasons, but I would certainly put that at the top of the list. And you did mention zombies basically being a metaphor earlier. And that, sure. that is something that that is very apparent to anyone who's ever spent any time looking at zombie films, especially from Night of the Living Dead on, because before then, maybe, like, depending on the filmmaker, but certainly since Night of the Living Dead, um, to greater or lesser 
uh, levels of success, I would say, zombie movies are almost always metaphors. So what what is it about you know the Walking Dead and flesh eating zombies that make them such a good metaphor that they can last and for this long? Well, and first of all, I think you're 100 percent right about the like Night of Living Dead sort of being a watershed moment where that really starts to basically cement itself. And it, it becomes more of a, a conscious choice on the part of a lot of people after that. Like, oh, we're doing a zombie story. This better mean something. And I mean, I, I spent many years teaching different courses about media literacy, not just, you know, just the fun stuff like zombies, but we also do theory and all that other kind of stuff. And and so my argument would certainly be that even earlier films, and even when there's no intent, you can still read plenty of meaning into anything. But you're absolutely right that there's a conscious choice to do that, particularly with zombies, particularly post-Night of Living Dead. And the reason why, again, I'll give you like a, a really simple, very generalized answer, is that out of the whole sort of pantheon of characters in horror, which in and of itself is a genre that's about taboo and about giving us a way to process fear. They are the closest to us. They are the most human. They are therefore the easiest to map onto whatever we're afraid of or that we're thinking about ourselves at any point in time. Vampires, werewolves, witches, all these other creatures, that certainly works too. And if somebody wants to write a whole book about those, that's fine too. Um, Probably won't be me, but but the there's an element of fantasy to them that removes them several more steps from their essential humanity in a way that the zombies are basically you know equal equal with us, equated with us, and therefore they're a very potent way to to comment on whatever we're thinking about or fearing at any point. So there's a I, I feel kind of a wrong-headed. Uh, thing that that people say uh, on occasion about horror being kind of a, a conservative genre. And I feel like that comes largely from um, like the 80s slasher movies are meant to be seen as kind of Reagan era, like... Mo- like the, you're punished if you're, if, especially women are punished. Yes. If they're sexually prom- uh, promiscuous or... Right, you know, th- doing drugs, like, like if you do drinking. Drugs, if you drink in the woods with your friends, you're gonna go get yourself killed. But then, and I feel, I feel like that's a very kind of a simple-minded way of looking at it. Because if, if you actually look at those films, I feel like that's not always the case. But that's kind of the reputation that they've built for themselves. It is a very, it's a very limited way of looking at it. But it, it just basically cuts to the heart of of one of the key elements of anything about media literacy and critical thinking in general, which is that one one of the like little buzz things I always say is I always consider, if we're just talking about movies, for instance, we'll just say movies, I always consider film to be our common cultural currency. It's like, this is where we have our conversations about everything we're thinking about. And that is neither conservative entirely nor liberal entirely. Everybody's involved. So you can easily find examples of things that, I'll give you just one example right out of the book. So, for instance, while it's true that you could construe a conservative angle to some aspects of the slasher genre, there are equally things you could do. Like, for instance, when Romero himself came back to do Land of the Dead in 2005, 
He did a story about the elite 1% living in a, in a high tower, uh, living off the 99% on the ground and leaving them to the zombies. And he was quite deliberately shaping that film as a commentary on the Bush administration at that time. Right. And, and in many ways, that movie travels pretty well into the present. So, you know, that's certainly not a conservative film. Correct. And and so yeah, so I mean you know we could we could make a whole list. So yeah, it's it's not just one or the other. You can find a mix of both. And and given your example, um, my favorite Friday the Thirteenth movie is Part Six, uh, Jason Lives, which by the way is the first one where he's definitively a zombie at the beginning of the movie. But it's also the first one that has a real tongue-in-cheek attitude to what had already become the rules of the genre with jokes about the characters having sex and dying and uh, jokes about traveler's checks and, and, and condoms, all sorts of things. And it was a very knowing poking fun at the, the silliness of the idea that this supernatural slasher character was somehow, you know, also an agent of justice uh, for things. So there's an awareness of it as well that pops up in a lot of these things. So why is it then that, um, I suppose what I what I was trying to get at was that the the zombie film is a little bit more I suppose revolutionary in a lot of ways because it is there those movies regardless of the other context are almost always going to be about a new society coming to literally devour the old society and kind of do away with it and replace it. Yeah, and certainly when we're talking about things like Ben and Night of the Living Dead and and some of the things I've been writing about in this book is running threads i'm sorry what oh sorry no good he, he okay. was bringing up i am legend as another example oh original, well yeah. yeah sure I, and i talk about all three film versions of that in the book too because um, they all count as far as i'm concerned so <laughs> there you go um but yeah, I mean, there's there's running threads throughout the genre, for instance, of racial issues and gender issues. One of the things I, I talk about quite a bit in the book is the recurring theme of dehumanization in zombie movies. And then I get pretty deep into the idea that, for example, you will often hear in stories of police uh, shooting uh black victims that they will talk about the fact that they saw them coming at them and they were they were overwhelmed by this horrific thing coming at them and some of them have even used in court the defense that apparently they see a large animal coming at them and this is what is referred to specifically and psychologically in far more detailed terms that psychologists because I'm that's not my doctorate <laughs> that that psychologists could explain with much more detail is that it is a specific kind of dehumanization to refer to other humans in animalistic terms and reduce them to some sort of primitive monster. That's a, a perfect, you know, uh, manifestation of racism. And so we see some of that actually at work in zombie movies as well. So there's a lot of that going on. But sadly, also, what I've also seen is some zombie storytelling... I think also tends toward providing the perfect fantasy and wish fulfillment for ultra-conservative right-wing survivalist types who see the zombie apocalypse as a great framework for justifying all of their fears and desire to shoot anything that's not them. And I've seen that grow 
more powerful in recent years, and it's also turned me off to some of the things that I used to follow on a regular basis and like, because I don't need, you know, a weekly dose of fascism for entertainment. <laughs> when I, I, I already have that online every day, so... I'm going to assume that here you're referring to uh, The Walking Dead. Oh, I might be talking about The Walking Dead. <laughs> I, I used to talk about The Walking Dead on my own podcast, Doctor of the Dead, all the time, but uh, I reached a breaking point almost exactly when Negan showed up. Um, and uh, I have rarely seen anything more sobering and, and more disturbing than to see so many fans. I mean... Let's face it, we're, all of us are fans of many things, and I would never discount anybody's desire to be like a fan of a character that's ostensibly a villain. Like, you know, you grow up with Star Wars, you love Darth Vader. It's like, he's a monster, he's, he's a murderer. You know, forget all the, you know, yeah, he's Anakin first and this, but the point is, there are villains, and we also grow up, we love the villain characters too. You know, there, there's a part of that that I understand, but the the way that so many... Walking Dead fans embraced and talk with such love and devotion about a character like Negan online, a man who, when he first turns up, you know, beats one of the most beloved characters to death on screen until his eyeball is popping out. That's quite literally the episode where I gave up. Uh, and I already knew that that was coming from the comic, but I still found it uh, a step too far. And I can't, I can't understand that, and I, I reject the idea that a character like that is anything to to love or or find joy in. So, so there, I think going back to your original thing, the point is that this, like everything else, has aspects of our entire culture in it, and it is across the entire spectrum. You can find things that are very liberal. You can find things that are very conservative, and everyone finds power in that zombie metaphor, which I guess ultimately shows you that that works. It works for everybody. That's true. And I, and I kind of want to touch back on what you were saying with um, the the cases of, of uh, excessive force against African-Americans from the police. You know, that is almost exactly like when we're talking about Night of the Living Dead, like there's kind of a chilling parallel with like the ending of that film, not to go too far into to spoilers for a 50 year old movie. <laughs> but I mean that the, the ending of that film, especially when viewed through like a modern context of like things that are happening in the world is a very kind of chilling reminder that as much progress as we've made over the last half century, there are many things where things are, you know, many ways in which things are exactly the same. Sure. And absolutely. And, and first of all, if anybody is, is going to give you problems about getting spoilers for the end of the night, then send them over to me because just that's ridiculous. Ben dies at the end. They are done. Um, but I mean, going back to your Ben question, it isn't just Ben. It's that ending. That's the reason this movie is so powerful. It's that moment that we're talking about. That's the whole thing. And Part of that is the fact that, and you just said, like, you know, how, how resonant it is today. Oh, it's it still shook audiences in 1968, particularly black audiences. And and I show I show it to a new group of students, uh, whether zombie class, and currently I've been teaching a lot of freshman composition classes, and I use Night of the Living Dead as a unit in every one of my freshman comp classes and show them the film and then have them write papers of, you know, 
any number of topics that derive from that film. And I have classes that are a mix of everybody, you know, male, female, black, white, and all sorts of backgrounds. And usually to a person in the room, the gasps are, are consistent and, uh, and sort of, I would even argue, reassuring. It's comforting to know that uh, young people I'm teaching on a regular basis, that we still have empathy in this culture and that still works. Um, it's, a, it's a little, it's a little uh, sobering also at times to realize how none of them know about this. They don't know it's coming, but it, it's great because it means they get to experience it for the first time. And, you know, it hits the end. The end comes up on screen and then it goes dark and I turn it off and I turn the lights up and usually somebody in the room does some variation of, you know, what the hell was that about? <laughs> and it's like, yes, let's talk about this now. What do you think? And they're angry and they're they're pissed that they just spent all that time getting emotionally invested in a guy who, you know, gets gunned down by white people. And, uh, and of course, I dissect this extensively in the book, but it's like, but that's it. That's a hugely important part of this and in 2018 sad part is it's maybe even more relevant today than it was then so so we've talked a lot about night of the living dead and its importance and we talked a little bit about some of the more recent um st zombie stories like in in walking dead and whatnot uh would you would you say that there is a what would you, what would you say perhaps the most important of the more recent like the 21st century zombie stories in terms of having a message in terms of that oh that's a very good question um I'm trying to think of some of the most recent stuff well going back a little ways but i'd say that uh warm bodies is one of the most brilliant modern hey. zombie movies that has been made that's uh, probably it, my favorite one. Okay. <laughs> it's it's a beautiful piece of work. I gave it a lot of time in the book because I really wanted to talk about it. And the last time I'd really had a chance to delve into things in a previous book, we'd we'd been wrapping that up around 2006. So, you know, a lot of that hadn't happened yet. And it's it very much sits in a a sort of newer trend of the self-aware sentient zombie that is capable of being cured which also brings with it a host of, you know, very pertinent reasons for why that, why that's happening. Um, so that's brilliant. I'd highly recommend that, you know, it, and it's also on one level, simplistically, you could say it's just basically a zombie riff on Romeo and Juliet, which it is, but it's much more than that. And also it's, it's very, uh, it's a movie that came out in 2013 and yet for anybody in 2018 who hasn't seen it yet, I would point out that one of the themes of the movie is how important it is for us to tear down walls between people rather than build walls between them. Uh, so five years later, that movie is, I think, even more powerful. So that's a good one. Um, I haven't, I, I have to fully admit, I have not yet seen it, but I think I will still say one of the ones I've heard the most about that's supposed to be very positive is The Girl with All the Gifts, which is based on a novel. And uh, I've been very delinquent in my zombie expert credentials. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but uh, by all accounts, it's one of the few examples of something that really tries to flip the script and do something different. Uh, and uh, and I'll, I'll also throw in one that is... Uh, 99% of all this stuff, like most, like most things, can be really poorly done. I mean, there's so many bad zombie movies out there, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, but there's one that's really ultra-low budget and not considered that great 
that I actually think is pretty damn good, and that's a movie called The Resort. Resort spelled with a Z, of course, uh, from 2015. And the basic premise is that after a zombie apocalypse, there's a Westworld-like setup that's been done where you can go to an island and sort of immerse yourself in the zombie hunt. But it also turns out to be a very pointed commentary on immigrants and refugees and the way we dehumanize people. Huh. And uh, and it's not you know it's not the greatest movie in the world. It is done by you know nobody famous and and yet I'd argue that there's more meaning in the resort than there is in seeing World War Z four times in a row. Mm. <laughs> so so those are ones I'll recommend right now. Can we go back and talk? Because Warm Bodies is probably not that I've seen a lot of zombie movies, but it's <laughs> it's probably my favorite um, of the genre. And I think what's really interesting, so it's Warm Bodies, and like you said, it's a riff on Romeo and Juliet, but then it, it was also very much in that, like, I think it got a lot of flack when it first came out, because one, it was originally a young adult book, it was a young adult mm-hmm. novel, it was yep. a romance novel, kind of coming on the coattails of Twilight. Yeah. And so I think, like, a lot of people really misjudged Warm Bodies when it came out, because it is... It is kind of, it's weirdly beautiful in a way where they, because at, at the end they have a walled city and they're trying to take down the wall, the, you have the teenage girl fighting to take down the walls of the, of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you had more to talk about that and kind of the way that we, one of my axes to grind in popular culture is definitely the way that we treat things that teenage girls like with such contempt it's a shame. I think Warm Bodies is one of the most brilliant zombie movies I've seen in the last 10, 15 years. I think it's a stunning piece of work. I really gush about it and the thing because <laughs> it has a lot of depth to it. It's First of all, it's done with such love and admiration for the genre that it clearly wants to be a part of. You know, yeah. it's not being done by people that are, you know, there, there are zombie movies, some of which are considered some of the greats that were done by people that were evidently then so embarrassed by the genre they were working in that they would, you know, oh, I'm not making a zombie movie. And it's like, <laughs> that that is what you're doing. Just lighten yeah. up. Meanwhile, Warm Bodies leans into it with, like, them having a Blu-ray of Zombie 2 at one point, and they're holding it up like, he can't be that. You know, he doesn't have maggots in his eye. And, they, <laughs> and, and it's in a world that knows zombies, which is another thing that sometimes is a bit rare. To have a zombie movie that exists in our world, a world that actually has a pop culture that includes zombies, and um, and there's a lot of sen- there's a lot of humor. There's sort of a beautiful friendship between him and Rob Corddry's Mercutio character M, um, yeah. and uh, but at the heart of it is is uh, and heart I guess is a good good way to put it. At the heart of it is some really really deep stuff about. You know, in a way, you could argue also like one of the oldest cliches in the book that love conquers all, but it's done in such a, a beautiful fairy tale like way where it's and there's also a lot of biblical imagery in the book. He's sort of baptized and, you know, purified at the end. And the wall, of course, is like the wall of Jericho and there's all kind of stuff going on It there. And I also thought it was very refreshing that you get a villainous character in a sort of military figure who's running things and sees the zombies as a threat. And yet, contrary to most films like this, 
when confronted with the truth of what is really happening, that character accepts it and moves forward and does not continue to fight something that is wrong. And I, I love the fact that they showed the capacity of people to change. There's a, a lot of wonderful stuff in War. Anybody that's a zombie fan that's avoiding warm bodies because they think it's silly is just ruining their own good time <laughs> because it's an amazing piece of work. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier that I thought was a really interesting point that was true. Certainly the first time I saw the movie, it was true for me, but like how surprised people are by the ending of night of the living dead. Yeah. Even though night of the living dead is a movie that has kind of, as, as we're talking about has permeated the culture over the last half century. It's, not like Janet Lee in the shower, right? It's not you know Bruce Willis at the end of Sixth Sense. Like this isn't a a twist ending or twist thing that happens in the movie that everyone knows about going into the movie. Why do you suppose that is? Like why do we know and talk so much about Night of the Living Dead and so little about the ending? Are fans that's, just that's a that's an excellent point, and that's one that I actually haven't thought of too much, but I, I think I have an answer for it right away, though, but it's I, I love that point. You're right. It's like you could stop a lot of people on the street, and they would know the shower scene, and they'd certainly know Bruce Willis. I mean, certainly if you get closer to the present, the more you get closer to the present, because our you know, attention span is like a gnat, you know, the, they'll, they'll certainly remember stuff that's more recent. But like, why would the surprise have been not be as all pervasive? But I think there's a good answer for that. And that's the fact that it also is a movie that was pushed to the fringes because it was treated as so taboo and so transgressive. The fact that the zombie genre until very recently was sort of like the the worst part of what was already considered a horrible genre of horror. <laughs> you know, like I, I make a lot of jokes all the time and like lectures. And I think I mentioned in the book too, that, and, and this is true. I mean, it sounds like a joke, but I, I remember like going into all the, the video stores in the old days and wanting to rent stuff in the eighties. And it's like, you would find horror in the back corner next to the curtain that goes into the pornography section. And that, that, that tells you everything you need to know about what people think of horror. And then on top of that, the zombie stuff is the stuff they'd throw at the bottom, you know, with that zombie tube box with the worm eye looking at you. It's like, that's the stuff they're hiding. And Night of Living Dead, right from its debut, was vilified by the Reader's Digest, by Roger Ebert, by everybody. So in a way... You could argue that the fact the movie went into the public domain, the fact that it's such a, a powerful statement, helped to give it such a reputation. But that reputation built in the dark, and it built on the fringes, and it in because of that, it did not get the opportunity to cement itself in pop culture in a way that people would immediately remember the ending the way I think you would say about something really ultimately as mainstream as Psycho. I mean, it doesn't matter how frightening that movie was. It was still a Hitchcock movie. There, it wasn't, it was in all the big multiplayer, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't hidden away. So I think that's the reason. And I, I think that's an excellent point. All right. Do you think there's anything about like 
our un- our like own kind of unconscious biases like are also I guess like what I'm trying to get at is I feel like a lot of people especially now in the 21st century will say things that maybe not as much during the 1960s but like oh I don't see race or like I'm colorblind <laughs> or anything like that and it's right. like those kinds of reactions and then seeing like this black man who we've invested so much time in being gunned down and being or confronted you, with that that kind of naked racism. Yeah, I mean, are you also suggesting that maybe that, that may also be a factor in why it doesn't linger in the pop culture consciousness? Like, that's a black guy getting shot, but Janet Lee's a white woman who's getting killed, mm-hmm. so yeah, maybe people focus on it. That's a possibility, too. I, I think that's certainly a valid argument to make. I think all these things are valid. It's it's and and it's one of the things that I think it's one of the main reasons why I think it it's kind of exciting in a way when I go back. It's like I can go back to this movie a million times and like even just the conversations we just had, still see it in a new way or find new things to say about it. And it's like that's the test of something that really you know transcends its time and is something that is capable of you know, generating new meaningful conversations. It's this weird little low budget movie that really, when you watch it, like the acting isn't great and there's some weird, you know, silly effects and it's done black and white and it's done much cheaper than a big movie at the time. And yet here we all are still talking about it. And uh, I think that's pretty impressive. So other than obviously Night of the Living Dead, and um, you you had mentioned previously your love of the movie Resort and um, and uh, Warm Bodies. Do you have a particular favorite, or maybe like a, another one that uh, another zombie story that you wish more people knew about? Oh, the more people know about. Um, well, I mentioned that movie Zombie. It's it's. Part, it's sometimes referred to as Zombie 2, sometimes Zombie. A lot of these movies have so many names because when they were all distributed like in the 70s and 80s, they'd all be given different names. Uh, and that movie that I was referring to was sort of the beginning of a boom in Italian zombie movies that really just were all over the place in the early 80s. But the one that I always recommend, that I will always send people to is, if you want to have the quintessential uh, Italian or European zombie movie experience, I recommend a movie called Burial Ground. And um, I will warn people in advance that it contains some pretty uh, overt and potentially, depending on your sensibilities, offensive stuff, but it's also everything I ever wanted from an Italian zombie movie. Um <laughs> So I will say that if you're interested in seeing that and if you're willing to watch some absolutely ridiculous, poorly done carnage and some really insane Oedipal storytelling with a guy in his 20s who's supposed to be playing like a 12-year-old boy, um, <laughs> then Burial Ground's your movie. And, and I, will, I will strongly recommend that to anybody. So it's kind of... The zombie like, I guess, subgenre of horror is really interesting because I feel like more than any other of the subgenres, it's the one that gets, I guess, can be riffed on the most. Like, I don't know, like, I think of, of movies like Shaun of the Dead. Sure. Zombieland. Um, Zombieland. Zombieland. Um, oh, oh, Black Sheep, the one from New Zealand where mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. all the sheep are zombies. Um, like, strippers versus zombies. Stri- 
Hey, that's not the full title. The oh, yeah. full title is Strippers, Strippers, Strippers. Yeah. Strippers versus Zombies. All right. That's right. But... Because you may not have known exactly what was happening, so they <laughs> added the subhead. Yeah. So you know. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And, and uh, I mean, there's some great examples of, I mean, horror and humor go well together. Both are, after all, about often going into areas that are uncomfortable. So they work well together. The, the first Return of the Living Dead is a great example of ultimately a hybrid between horror and humor. And when it's funny, it's really funny. And when it's horrific, it is about as horrific and nihilistic as it can get. And the one thing that may just be a personal thing for me, though, is that like the ones you mentioned, Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland, both of which are also, I think, quickly becoming modern classics, is I find it works best when the humor derives organically from character, when it is not like, say, an overt parody of the genre or something that's saying, let's do the goofy zombie pratfalls for an hour and a half, but where you're telling a story in that world where the zombie thing is real and everything is real, but the humor comes from characters that are funny or that have funny things to say or a funny outlook on life or interact with each other the way we and our family and friends do and, and joke. And that's an example. Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland are two great examples of that. Uh, and I, I like that kind of thing. I don't like um, the trend of like those those awful, well, I say awful, but some people might like them and that's fine. But like the, those ones that are like the uh, the epic movie or the, the parody movies where they just, yeah. it's just a string of references to every movie you've already seen and as if that's inherently funny. And it's, and it's like the I Big don't Bang theory of screenwriting. <laughs> yeah, and I don't find that funny. And 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 yet, you know, I say that, and yet you put one in front of me, and I'm sure a few times I'd still wind up laughing because we we often laugh at just the recognition of something, like oh yeah, I know that thing, that's cute. But but I think it's funnier and it's more satisfying when it's something like Shaun of the Dead or Zombieland. But you're right. I mean, it's it's such an inherently silly premise that why not, you know, sometimes have fun with it and see what you can do with it. Warm Bodies has a good sense of humor to it, too, when it counts. Do you think it's also, like, this is, like, one of the first points that you had talked about, that um, everything else, like, with witches and um, werewolves and vampires, it's that step removed from humanity, whereas a zombie, it's, like, the fewest steps that you have to get to. Do you think, like, that kind of lends itself to being a more human or easily humorous situation because there's just there's more humanity to zombies i think you could you could certainly make that argument maybe that's it could also be that that's the reason why when it works really well the humor can be something that works within you know I, and i i say i say the next word and hopefully you know what i mean a realistic zombie apocalypse <laughs> but i think you know what i mean i mean like, and i've often talked at other places too about how i feel like a story needs to adhere to its own level of reality it needs to set up a level of reality and say this is what we're going to deal with and then it has to adhere to that and if it does then whatever weird stuff it throws at you it's like yes but that's the reality of that world and then from within that you can get a lot of humor from the fact that it's very close to us yes i think that when you deal with the other creatures you could still derive a lot of humor maybe there's more of a tendency for it to be a bit more glib or a bit more uh parody like because it's it's more removed but i'm sure people could come up with plenty of examples um where they're a little more nuanced about that too 
it's uh, partly it's just because it's just because two zombies have become my cottage industry for so long that it's something I'm certainly focusing on more. But uh, but I think it's a good point. Yeah, I think it's a way of looking at it. So the ones that we've talked about, like the more modern examples that we talked about, are still like a few years old. And I know that for a while, zombies seem to kind of have saturated the media, um, like in the mid 2000s early 20 teens like we we had a lot of zombie movies and now it seems that they've kind of gone away um with the exception of the walking dead is really the only thing right now that is extremely popular that that focuses on them so you know not to not to put too fine a point on it but is the zombie genre dead well Uh. with all due respect right now as we speak the walking dead is entering its next season this fall its spin-off, Fear the Walking Dead, is going strong. I think it's entering season four. Z Nation on the Sci-Fi Channel is going into season five. iZombie is about to start its final season and is still going on. A movie, I think it was from Australia, called Cargo, did the festival circuit recently based on a short feature, and it, the feature started Martin Freeman and got significant buzz. Movie called Anna and the Apocalypse. It's a Christmas movie with zombies is coming out. Um, what else? There's a movie with Stanley Tucci and Matt Smith coming up called Patient Zero, in which a sentient zombie might be leading a zombie rebellion against the living people. Uh, and, uh, oh God, there's a list of about a dozen others I had at the end of the book. So, uh, no. <laughs> it's, it's it's not. Um uh, but ba- I mean, basically, you know, the if if you think it's gone away, it's probably just because it may not be something you're looking for. That there's nothing huge at the moment, but it is very much it. I think what we may be heading into because the argument I've been making for some time is that post 9/11, we've had like the largest sustained surge of popularity, and it led to basically the full mainstreaming of the zombie genre that used to be you know, this, um, this, you know, corner of the video store, I think what we're now seeing is that maybe as we're reaching the sort of 20 year mark of that, we're now reaching a point where it is joining the landscape of pop culture in the same way that we're just going to start having a superhero movie every six months or a Star Wars movie (laughs) every six months. And that may feel like oh, are they not as popular now? But really what's happened is we've just let them settle in and stay. And that may be what's happening. And I think that's probably a good transition to talk about the other book that you've uh, recently published, Storytelling Engines, How Writers Keep Superhero Sagas Going and Going. <laughs> ah, yeah, that that I'm so happy to have published that. That was one of the titles that... Uh, I had in mind and I'd talked to the author about when we were just getting ATB started and uh, his name is John Seavey and he had written for a few years ago, he'd written a very popular um, blog, a series of uh, columns online and at one point Comic Book Resources, one of the big comic websites was sharing it and the basic premise of his series was looking at for the most part, superheroes, although he also looks at some other things, some sci-fi and even like DC's war titles and some other things, but primarily superheroes. If you look at like Marvel and DC heroes stretching back to the Golden Age and all the way up to the present, most of these characters, and this is a broad generalization, but most of these characters 
are based in the idea that they're going to keep telling stories about them forever. There's no beginning, middle, and end to the saga of Superman or to Spider-Man. They want to keep selling comics with those characters forever. So his premise was, how do you take characters where you can't ever really give them a definitive ending and keep generating stories for that character in a way that always feels fresh and new and exciting? How do you do that? And how do you do that well? And then he started looking at huge runs of all these characters over the years and looked at what writers did that well, who didn't, and why that might be. What are the factors involved that make a superhero saga function? And it just, I'd spent like 20 years in the comic industry myself, and it just was one of the most like refreshing and interesting takes on the whole idea that I'd ever read. And I thought this is a book I'd want to read. So I was just really excited to publish it. All right. Um, so oh. I, I was just going to say, so I hate, to, I hate the phrase like devil's advocate, but, okay. but to use the phrase devil's advocate, um, why, why is it important to give scholarly criticism on things that are most people would consider like genre film or genre media, which is, you know, kind of, we were talking about like horror being in the back next to the, the porn curtain and then zombies being like even below that and talking about comic books and these different kind of things, you know, we're not talking about Mad Men or prestige television. We're talking about comic books and zombie movies. So what is the value of giving um, like media criticism or like scholarly work about these kinds of things? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's certainly one of the things that uh, I was hit with a lot when I started my zombie course that <laughs> and, and parents saying things like, Oh, this is why America's failing. Um, so I'm always delighted to, to destroy this ridiculous assumption. I mean, just just like you put it, and I know you were putting it in, in a deliberate way, just the way you put it about like Mad Men and Prestige Television, the notion that somehow popular entertainment and things like comics and zombies or superheroes or science fiction or horror is somehow inherently less than is exactly the sort of elitist garbage that people use to keep another class of people in their place. And... It's the same reason why, like you talked about not liking the phrase devil's advocate, I hate the phrase guilty pleasure. Because guilty pleasure is a term that, that was specifically designed to shame other people for liking something that you feel is not worthy of being liked. And it's like, if you like something, it's not a guilty pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's fun. Yeah. And, and for the same reason, the reason why it is not only important but vital to focus all of our efforts in critical thinking and media literacy on examining things like popular entertainment, whether that's zombies or comics, is that that is because that is where we are having this conversation about everything in our culture, what we feel, what we think, what we aspire to be, what we're afraid of. Those things have meaning. None of it is frivolous. And you could argue, yes, but someone went out there with a digicam yesterday and shot a zombie movie with his buddies. He wasn't trying to make a point. No, that one specific instance 
maybe you might have a bit of an effort to find meaning it but it's part of a larger story it's part of a larger landscape of entertainment that is reflective of who we are as people and if we don't teach young people in particular that everything that they experience has meaning they're just going to be that much more susceptible to be turned into zombies themselves by the people that want to manipulate them and shape what they think and feel and that's why I've been dedicated to teaching in the area of media literacy all these years because this stuff is important it's where we're saying important things and we need to make sure that kids understand that when they go to a movie or listen to a song it doesn't just wash over you and leave your brain it's important and we need them to understand that thank you all right you got me really going on that one yeah. so, yeah. so <laughs> i gave i gave you both barrels of the media literacy <laughs> argument oh i can't tell you how many people in comment threads on articles about the zombie course back then were just like you know we'll see this is why America's going downhill because we're teaching kids about zombies. It's no, I'm I'm actually teaching your children to understand that while you're watching Fox News, you know, <laughs> they're actually, you know, indoctrinating you into a particular agenda. Meanwhile, you want your kid to just go to school with an empty mind and learn how to pick up a wrench or a hammer. So, you know, pardon me if I want us to be a bit smarter when we're moving forward. So, that's it. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, um, so other things happened this week. Yeah, well, <laughs> so so let, let, before we continue, before we move on to the second part, yeah. Um, what what are, uh, when is your book coming out again? Just so people can remember. The official release date for Journey of the Living Dead is September seventh, two thousand eighteen, and um, is that going to be uh, in? It will not be in bookstores, it, and the reason is because we are a very small press, so it will be available exclusively at atbpublishing.com, and uh, we'll probably be doing all kinds of interesting ways to help promote the initial uh, release of the book, and we have some other products there that are related, so uh, that'll be something somebody can check out as we move forward. But you can also find ATB Publishing on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. And that's where we make sure we keep everybody up to date on what's going on. And Storytelling Engines is available now through ATB Storytelling Engines is available now through atbpublishing.com. And uh, so are all our other books. If you're a Doctor Who or Star Trek fan, we have things for you too. And we also have a book that's uh, based on uh, some reviews and essays related to Buffy the Vampire Slayer coming up later this year too. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Sure. Yeah. So um, now the second part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We... You want to join us as a guest contributor to Some Nerds Have a Podcast? <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. <laughs> sure. All right. All right. So it's it's funny because we usually have a very loose style, and I feel like this is the tightest kind of episode that we've done. <laughs> we also spend a lot of time on our episode being very uh, self-deprecating about how <laughs> terrible our podcast is. So we really you, know how to sell things here at Summer. You, you guys have already done one of the most like uh, well-constructed podcasts I've ever been on, so it's fine. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's good. So we can only go downhill from here. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. That's... Let's let's start the tumble. <laughs> okay. Um, so we're based in uh, Eastern Virginia, and uh, this weekend in Williamsburg, this past weekend in Williamsburg, there was the Scares That Care convention. Mm -hmm. 
um, which is a horror convention that is essentially, it's kind of interesting. Have you heard of this before, Arnold? That sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't really know what it's about. So it's a, basically what the convention is, it's a massive fundraiser for this nonprofit that gives money to causes that research uh, juvenile cancer and oh, okay. help families that are dealing with um, with like a child or a loved one having cancer. Uh, so the, the kind of tagline of the convention is like, you know, raising money for the real monsters of uh, yes. we, we, we fight We fight real monsters. Yeah. Uh, so they Very end up nice. getting like a lot of, they get guests. Um, they do like everything that you go to is kind of like a small mini fundraiser. So they have like a 5K. Uh, they have a Rocky Horror uh, picture show showing uh, with Very Shadowcast nice. for, uh, for charity as well. So it's like you can kind of feel good about your depravity. Mm-hmm. Um, or your degeneracy, however you want to look at it. Um. <laughs> oh, I'm looking right now, and I see that I missed this incredible opportunity <laughs> to have a Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney photo op. Oh, yeah. Uh, Catherine Mary Stewart did uh, a karaoke oh. for the first time. Oh, my God. <laughs> she, that's awesome. She did uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. It was pretty great. And you had to follow oh. her up. <laughs> yeah, I did have to follow her up. I had to and follow Doug her Bradley up, and I had there. to follow the Rocky Horror cast. I'm sorry, what was Very that? nice. I see Doug Bradley was there too. Doug so Bradley was, there. was in attendance. Yeah, a lot of familiar faces here. Oh yeah, there was, this I was, was looking, a, a really a really solid lineup this year. Um, the two that had to step away at the last minute that I was really looking forward to seeing was um, Keith David and Tony Todd were also oh, supposed okay. to be there, and they they had to cancel. Do I know Keith David is filming his new show? I don't know why Tony Todd had to cancel, um, but. Doug Bradley Somebody didn't there. say Candyman enough times. I yeah, think. I suppose. <laughs> um, or, you know, he had to collect some souls from teenagers who didn't get on a plane <laughs> they were supposed to get on. That's right. Yeah. Um, but so Alex and I both went. Elise didn't go because Elise doesn't care much about horror movies. Sorry. Um, <laughs> like after this whole interview and it sounded like I knew what I was talking about at the end of it, it's like I don't like horror as much. As, well, other, as other genres. Y- you hit it well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, it's it was a really good weekend. I, 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 yeah, mean, I did go to Rocky Horror. You did go to Rocky Horror. I did Horror go to Rocky us, Horror. That's true. It was a lot of flashbacks to college. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one thing that Alex and I talked about a lot this weekend is that a lot of the guests, and like they seem to be the big name guests, were like people from uh, Sons of Anarchy, which yeah, we're still like... That's not quite horror. Like, Doug Bradley's panel was, like, noon on a Sunday. And there was, like, a handful of people in attendance there. I don't understand. Why? Yeah. I, I don't get it either. I, I've seen that same thing happening at, like, the... I've been to quite a few of the the Walker Stalker conventions, the mm-hmm. Walking Dead conventions. There's a huge crossover in Walking Dead fandom with Sons of Anarchy. And, uh... I, is I, it the all motive? I know about Sons of Anarchy is uh, bikers, I think. Yeah. That's it. I, I That's su- all I know about I, it. It's about mutual aid, though. I suppose the Daryl connection is the big thing. Like, I think possibly. I think it's just like an aesthetic. and and um, But I, I don't know anything else. I, I mean, there's also other areas of horror I've never really been into personally. Like, there's such a huge crossover and horror and being a heavy metal fan too but that's yeah. never been something to me musically but i understand that that's a thing and 
you know, so maybe that's a bit of that. I don't know, but I've um, I've never seen it, and and yet it's it's a big trend. It's a lot of a lot of crossover. You see a lot of that at other horror conventions too. Sons of Anarchy. A lot of people are big fans of Boondock Saints because yep. of Norman Reedus, but yeah, you know. And the other, so, the other one from Boondock Saints, the other brother. Yeah, um, yeah Sean, Sean, Sean Flannery, who Sean I Flannery. see was there. Yeah, yeah. He was also there. Yeah. So, I don't the know. Boondock it was the, Saint guy they could get. I, I guess. <laughs> they couldn't get Norman Reedus. He was too busy hanging out in Japan. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. Yeah. With, with his funky fetus. <laughs> um, I don't know. What are, is there anything else we want to talk about with the convention? Um, it was a, it was a lot of fun. I spent way too much money. Yeah, I spent um, I spent more money than I did last. We went last year too. Um, that was actually where this this podcast kind of came from. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I don't know if we actually talked about on the podcast. No, before, we didn't. But when we when the two of us went last year, uh, we were having lunch or something, and we were at a, we were at a panel. We were at a panel, we were at a panel for for uh, there was a lot of horror podcasters doing a panel. Mm-hmm. And the question was asked, like, do uh, who here wants to do like is interested in making their own podcast? And Alex and I both raised our hands, and then we turned and looked at each other, and we're like, "You want to do a podcast?" <laughs> and that was basically all the thought we put into it. Yeah, <laughs> and then we spent the lunch and the fire alarm at that lunch uh, talking about what we were going to do on it and how we were going to get it working and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so this this uh, podcast was conceived about a year ago. Yep. Awesome. Um, Good place to start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like like Elise says that horror's like not her thing. I don't know. I mean, it's I like some horror things, but I'm not like super duper always into it. So it was kind of weird. But I know you. Love I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I didn't know hardly any of the the panelists, or you know, really. Not not even including the Sons of Anarchy stuff, but like the 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 horror panelists, like was Doug Jones, Doug Bradley, Doug Bradley, yeah, I know. I wish Doug Jones. <laughs> That'd be awesome too. <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, but put them both on a panel, the two Dugs. Yeah, the yeah. Two Dugs. You know them, just not their faces. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, it'd be. Uh, but yeah, no, I was really looking forward to meeting Doug Bradley because I was a, I'm a big Hellraiser fan. Like I've I haven't seen all the movies, but. I mean, after a while, they just kind of get to the point where it's like, yeah, I think I'm good with Hellraiser. Like, I, I consider myself a really big fan, and I only really like the first two movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's valid from what I understand. Yeah. I, I do, my wife has seen every Hellraiser but one, the the latest one, mm-hmm. which I'm... we have sitting somewhere on DVD, I think, haven't yet seen. But she uh, she wrote a very uh, very viral piece online that continues to pop up in people's feeds where she uh, did a survey of the entire Hellraiser series oh, and God. broke down every movie and you know reviewed it and came up with some fascinating stuff that's like the sort of thing I look at and go oh I would never have thought of that and uh, went through the whole Hellraiser series. So she did the work so you don't have to. <laughs> that, that works out. They're um, all. They're all on Netflix, or at least they were last time I checked. And but it's even still, it's just like after you get to like the you know Pinhead in space, and it's just kind of like once you're past four, it gets it gets painful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is that but, the same uh, with the Jason movies? 
Um, I don't know. The Jason movies are are all basically the same level of quality. No. I, Actually, Jason in Space is pretty fun. So oh, <laughs> at least yeah, I yeah, think yeah. so, anyway. Yeah, Jason. Yeah. I mean, it, it is certainly one of the better later ones. But again, yeah. they're, they're like... The Friday the 13th movies were never like like amazing cinema. Like they're all like really fun movies. But yeah. it's like that's the thing. Is like at their best they're like oh like really good slasher movies. At their worst yeah. it's like slightly less good slasher movie. But yeah, there's mm-hmm. there's a level of self-awareness there. There's a level of fun there. Unlike the the Halloween movies where after the third one they were like oh people want Michael Myers back. We don't really have anything else for him to do. Let's invent a curse. <laughs> There's a curse now, an occult, I guess. And then they don't get don't don't get me started on the cult of Thorn. <laughs> I'm a they massive just... Halloween fan, and I stuck I... through the series through everything yep. except Rob Zombie. Oh yeah. Um, but um, but the Thorn thing, I just uh, <laughs> I can't. I can't. And, and then they dropped that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm I'm really looking forward to the new one, but you know, yeah. at this point, it, the Halloween series has made a virtue of having multiple timelines, so I don't care anymore. I just want to see a good one because it's it, like the new one is just like ignoring everything that happened after the end of the first movie. Exactly. Like, like yeah. even, not e- even two. Even so two. It, yeah. Yeah. So they're not even brother and sister anymore. It's just it's just the end of the first one. And at this point in my life, it's like, sure, bring it on. Yep. <laughs> let me, let probably, me see what you do. Probably fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, what was it? Halloween 5 that started with uh, with the little girl. Like, you thought that she had killed the guy at the end of Halloween 4, but we decided we actually don't want to make her the villain. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem was that Halloween 4, which I like... Um, had one of the best possible endings that could have really taken things in a wild new direction and was maybe even a little forward thinking at the time and then they got scared. Yep. And then they're like, well, the problem is everybody wants Michael back and it's like, no, do the thing with Jamie. This will be interesting. Like, nope, nope. Uh, so I, yeah, yeah, we saw someone cosplay. As we Jamie. saw someone cosplay as Jamie. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, but. I don't know. I've kind of lost the thread of what we were talking about. Now I'm just thinking about Halloween movies. Well, let's talk about Halloween movies. Why not? <laughs> oh, like, well... This, this never has a thread. That's you should true. know this by now. That's true. We're almost a year into this. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I just... I think I'm, I'm going to finally go through what I was going to do last October and watch all the Friday the 13th and all the, the uh, Halloween movies in order and just kind of talk about it on the podcast. Just like, <laughs> just have a have a full like retrospective of the entire series. But it's basically. I used to. Oh. oh no, go ahead. No, no, no. Go finish. I was just gonna say I, I used to do that every year. I'd go through the whole Halloween series every year. It's been a long time, but I feel like this year, particularly for the with the new one, I might want to go through everything, the good yeah. and the bad. Yeah, and that that is a movie where it's like the highs are really high. Like, like Halloween one, two and three are all like really good. And then it's all Um, with you. It's kind of downhill from there. And then there's like little, little spikes every once in a while. I I like four, but I like four because I have a real nostalgic connection for how excited I was at the time that Michael was actually coming back. Yeah. And I remember going to the theater and I've often talked about, like, I just remember seeing the opening of that and the guy closes the ambulance door and the music boomed out in the theater for the first time. And I was like, this is a dream come true. Halloween's back and Michael's back. And uh, and it's not great. 
I mean, but in retrospect, considering where they go, yeah, after that, it's better. Four's than the pretty rest. good. Yeah, four's pretty good. It's a nice attempt to try to get back to where it was, but then it just it goes south fast. But uh, yeah, I'm one of those dedicated fans. Like I'll ride it through the bad times too and see what happens. But uh, I have a very strong aversion to Rob Zombie anything, so I. Mm. I uh, who I is can't Rob do that. Zombie? Because like I don't really know. <laughs> oh my god! So he's a musician. he's he's somebody who shouldn't have a camera. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of people, and I, I will be honest, I have not actually seen any of his movies. But he's You're not missing anything. Uh, I've got over on my shelf. I've got the Blu-ray box set of all of the Halloween movies, including uh, the Did Rob Zombie one. Did you get the fifteen? disc one no i didn't I oh got the 10 disc okay one. I, I was really bummed out because i like i, I found out I about the the 15 disc one after i already purchased the 10 disc one yeah now um, that one's like super rare and yeah. out of print it's ridiculous yeah and um, i mean the big thing that that i'm missing with that though is like the the tv edits of the first halloween and then the producer cut of halloween six yeah, the, right. those are really the only things that it's like. Those would be pretty neat things to have. And the producer cut of Halloween Six, you can get on its own for like five dollars on Blu-ray. Yeah, you can get that separate. And the TV cut used to be on like I have like some of the older DVD because like like Evil Dead Halloween was one of those things Anchor Bay put out like a different version every five minutes. Yep. So they they have the TV cut. I don't know. Maybe it was just they included the scenes. Maybe they didn't actually give you like the full edit of everything. Yeah. But yeah. So Robert J. Zambini. Yes. Who Rob- is this person? Okay. So he's he started off his career as a musician. Hmm. Um, he's in the he was in the band um, White Zombie, which we brought up earlier, hmm. Um, hmm. with with his brother, I think, who's the the lead guy for Power Man Five Thousand. I want to say. Um, but then he switched from digging through ditches and burning through witches um, in the, the back of his Dracula to making films. Uh, and he did House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects, which have a really big following. Um, and the third movie for that is about to come out. And then he also did a remake of Halloween and then a sequel to the remake. Um, but yeah, he's, he's got, he's someone who's got a really big kind of cult following, but yeah, he's either someone that people love or they hate. Yeah, and I'm kind. That's 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 the way it is. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in the middle on him. I've never actually seen any of his movies, but like his move, his music is okay. It's not it's not my favorite, but like I'll listen to it. And I'm like, I'm look. I keep looking at the the Blu-ray set. I'm like, well, I have them. <laughs> I might I might at some point go back go through and watch the 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 remake. I don't know. I, I'm not. I don't have, have terribly high hopes for it, but like a lot of people yeah. who like grindhouse kind of movies seem to really appreciate him. But I find he falls. His kind of storytelling falls in an area that I find just personally very off-putting. It's like he revels in cruelty for the sake of it. Like it's not. I I've seen more than my share of like gory stuff, but it's uh-huh. usually in service to a story. His stuff is usually about just reveling in in cruelty and pain, yeah. in a way that's emotionally uncomfortable. And I and I also find it disturbing that so many people like take joy in that. So his his version of Halloween, I've seen bits of both 
both of his Halloween movies, and it was just stunning to me how like deeply hurtful his his kind of movies are. So it's like I got I have no time for that. But you know, but there are people like you said, there are people that like just are just uh, fervent fans and like are eagerly awaiting every new thing he does. So he has a following, and there are people that really enjoy his work. Who hurt you, Rob Zombie? Why are you like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh my God! So much of that. I have, like I said, I haven't seen it, but the, from what I understand, the the thing that I think would upset me the most is uh, the changes that he makes to Loomis's character. Yes. Uh, to to kind of make because he's trying to create a more humanized version of of Michael Myers, and in so doing, he dehumanizes Loomis and kind of turns him from this like like tortured character who is trying desperately to prevent this like force of evil from breaking out into the world to kind of a, a self-centered jerk who is only really interested in like maintaining his own reputation, which here's the, I'll give you the one reason why I have no respect for Rob Zombie and can't like anything he does. And it comes, I don't have the details in front of me, but this is all, Stuff that that's true is that <laughs> many many years ago he did an interview where they it was around probably around the time of either House of a Thousand Corpses or Devil's Rejects or one of those things. But the point is they were talking to him about why are you a horror fan? Why are you a horror filmmaker? And one of the things he was gushing about was he loves John Carpenter's Halloween mm-hmm. and you know Michael Myers is. You know, like John Carpenter always said, he's the shark from Jaws. He's this unstoppable juggernaut. And one of the key things that makes Halloween so amazing and so memorable is that you never know anything about why Michael is the way he is. He's just this inexplicable force of nature. That's why he's frightening. And I love Halloween. And it's, you know, I love John Carpenter. And they asked him, would you ever consider doing a remake? This was years before that was even a possibility. Do you ever consider doing a remake? And he was adamant in the interview, I would never do that because I would never step on the memory of a thing that I love so much. And then, you know, flash forward years later, and there's a really nice paycheck coming. And suddenly Rob Zombie's like, well, I guess I'm doing Halloween then. And then on top of that, makes a movie where he spends like an entire part of the movie introducing us to a Michael who is like the abusive child of a white trash family in a trailer and is being beaten and and uh, is abusive himself because the cycle of abuse and see that's why he's a murderer because of this and so suddenly Rob Zombie the man who said he loved Halloween and would never touch it and also by the way it's because Michael's inexplicable gives us a Michael that's completely explained <laughs> and and takes away all the magic of the character by saying well he's an abused child and he's continuing the cycle of abuse it's like well you didn't understand the first thing about what made that movie special there you go. There's my Rob Zombie rant. So you could, <laughs> hey, fair I'll, I'll I'll now lose everybody that uh, that likes Rob Zombie, which is okay with me. So that's fine. That's the 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 twenty people that listen to this podcast. I'm sure will. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna get out. Um. Oh, that's okay. All right, we've been talking about horror a lot. At least you really wanted <laughs> you really wanted to talk about the uh, the changes to the Oscars before yeah. before we close tonight because this was like breaking news. What today or yesterday? No, it was today, so it'll be completely old news by the time, by the time this, this gets this published. Actually, that's true, you know. But but it's fine because um, I think it's kind of interesting. I like uh, I like when 
um, elitist white men try to put their thumb on uh, the pulse of culture. Like, what's hip with the kids right now? Um, so the so today the Oscars announced their latest three changes to the format. One, they're going to reduce it from a four-hour runtime to a three-hour runtime. So you get a whole hour of your life back. That's pretty exciting. Um, they are going to air it earlier in March, March, so it's closer to the Golden Globes. Because this past year was about two months later. And um, next year it's going to be less. It's going to be more like four to six weeks after the Golden Globes to kind of tighten up awards season. Because um, that, that shit was just dragging on forever. Because one, it's a thing. And two, it was dragging on forever. Um, but the most interesting and controversial, and I kind of want to get everybody's takes on this, is they're adding a new award called Outstanding Achievement in Popular Film. So we have a lot of questions because like <laughs> literally all it was was announced was like outstanding achievement in popular film. So it's like, is this going to be a category based thing? Like, are they going to go back to the old method of having five films for best movie and like five and are there going to be five films nominated for best popular film? Like, is it? we're going to give a statue to George Lucas every year to thank him for Star Wars? Like, what the fuck is going to be outstanding achievement in popular film? Like, like, no other, there's no, it didn't seem like there was anything else to come out of it other than just, we're we're doing the outstanding achievement. But they're not going to do the things that they really need to do the Oscars, which is include a more diverse pool of people who are nominating, um, who are doing the nomination and the voting of the Oscars. We can't do that. (laughs) We can't have, like, people of color up in here, you know, trying to make suggestions. But we will have an outstanding achievement in popular film. Like, I'm I'm sorry. I've ranted a lot. Somebody else, please start talking (laughs) before I I have the vapors take me over. I've got a BBC article here about this. Okay. Okay. Uh, and it, it does say that they've they have added uh, eight thousand more voters that are more diverse with women and people from ethnic minorities. Okay. Um, oh, that's good. So they've done that. I don't know. That's eight thousand votes out okay. of how many? Why was that not the thing you led with? <laughs> <laughs> like, why is it like, hey guys, we're gonna cut an hour out of this, out of this runtime? Oh, by the way. That thing that everybody criticized uh, us about, we kind of fixed it. Well, I don't like, know. Like, why it's is that not what you like lead with? I'm sorry. I, I don't just... know. But uh, but basically, the the whole articles is like, so this is how uh, they're gonna get Black Panther uh, to get an Oscar. Yeah. Because uh, that's what it is, right? Like, yeah. they don't want to actually nominate Black Panther for best movie of the year. Because then we'll have a superhero film. Yeah. Because we can't have a superhero film that's like a really interesting pan-African futurism film. Like, that would be terrible. I mean... I I have an interesting angle to add to it from something that's just been coming out because, you know, most of the news that comes out is news about, oh, here's another reason why, you know, while you've been living your life, something horrible has been happening at the upper (laughs) echelons of power. Um, So there's this. And like we were talking about earlier, of course, it's another wonderful example of that elitist garbage of saying that something popular is not inherently good. Because you notice they need to create like, so what does this mean then? Why does this have to sit next to best picture? Like, here's the best popular one for all you great unwashed that like that crap you like. I mean, it's like when they created best picture. But meanwhile, 
the best picture is really this thing that we, you know, ju- but yeah. here's also, the interesting thing about it, though. Black people in movies. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the be... interesting thing about it, though, is that the best popular thing. Yeah. Um, Disney has been spending the last several years consolidating ownership of nearly every major franchise and brand that we know and love. Which is they now have, right? Yeah, it is. And they have Marvel, they have Star Wars, they have the Muppets, they're about to close a deal with all the Fox content, which, you know, is is extraordinary in and of itself. And while many of us, myself included, are delighted on one level about, oh boy, Fantastic Force coming home, there's also the horrific stuff about how it crushes voices. Um, but it's also interesting that the Oscars have been uh, declining in ad revenue and uh, viewership for years now, and it was particularly bad last time. And now word has come out from Variety that it was the executives at ABC, ABC, owned by Disney, who specifically contacted the Academy, sat down with them and told them, here are things we think you should do in order to help us with our very poor ratings, including adding a best blockbuster or popular category, which, let's see, what are the odds that yeah. that will go to a Disney movie? D- Disney oh, will God. win an Oscar every year from now until So the basically, yeah, exactly. So basically, Disney went to the Academy and said, we're mad that our TV department is not getting enough money, and we want you to hand an empty, meaningless statue to our film department so that our TV department can make money. Oh, no. And the Oscars are ridiculous anyway, but this yeah. is... Uh, this is being reported now. It's like, well, this is what happened. They said, this is what we want. And the Academy said, okay. So yeah. there you go. Of, of course that they, you kind of hit the nail on the head there with like why the Oscars are like not popular anymore is because people are starting to realize that this is like close to what? 90 years now of like them just yeah. picking exactly the wrong movie almost every year. I mean, like, since the beginning, because like even Citizen Kane lost. Yeah, Citizen. Kane. No, that's what I'm, that's my point. Yeah. Is that like Citizen Kane didn't win any Oscars? Like, you know, when's the last time you sat down to watch the King's speech? Like, who actually cares what this particular Here. group of people think is the best movie every year? Because that's it's not going to be the movie that's remembered I usually. Mean, I don't watch it. It's- it's not a lock, but one of the best ways to win a Best Picture Oscar is to make a movie about a young white person working as a struggling actor slash writer slash director in Hollywood. And oh my, isn't Los Angeles a beautiful and magical place, but so hard. And if I just try, I can be something. And then it ends with a big musical number, the big release of his film, and everybody else singing in L.A. goes, wow, that movie really speaks to me. I think that's amazing. <laughs> and suddenly it wins Best Picture. That's your Best Picture award. That or and, set it uh, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, be- and the Best Popular one will now be whatever the latest Marvel or Star Wars movie is, which, you know, on the one hand, hurts me even to say because I love all that and I'm enjoying all the stuff they're doing still. And I love all the new Marvel movies. And it it doesn't change the fact that all the many people working on them are trying within a system that is ultimately very corrupt to create stuff that still manages to mean something useful, like just one example, Black Panther. Yeah. yeah. But, but in the midst of all that, it's all being 
churned up in a machine that is you know has all these tendrils there's abc there's this you know the oscars and and uh, it's a shame so you know you feel very conflicted and i sit here thinking i love all these things but i also don't want them to make a best popular award that underscores the idea that there's a division there and that you know eh, there's so many things that are wrong with it but one more reason not to watch the oscars mm-hmm. right even if it's only three hours now. It's only three hours, guys. Yeah. I mean, but it's also kind of sad because one of the ways that they're going to cut down on the runtime is all of a lot of the technical awards are now going to be given out during commercial breaks. They're going to hurry up and edit it and then send it out to these people who I this got. is their only time that they get to, you know, be, I guess, adored or accoladed on a, on a large scale. They already shoved so much of that stuff over yeah. to like another thing, right? Like they have like a like the week prior, and it's like the science and technical awards yeah. of the Oscars, and it's like, well, you're already let's let's just screw you over even more. Watch, yeah. they'll crush they'll they'll cut out the documentaries because they're usually political. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll cut out the foreign language films because nobody in America wants to hear another language spoken, even in a clip. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, I mean, there are lots of things they can do that they in can cut film. out. They're talking yeah, in short films. Yeah. yeah. Which are some of the only independent voices that get... Right. True independent voices that get, you know, mainstreamed on the Oscars. Right. I mean, basically, when the Oscars do something interesting or meaningful, it's usually an accident. <laughs> it's like Moonlight. It was like, oh, wait. I mean, yeah. La La Land. Oh, Moonlight. It's it's actually going to... Yeah, a it's a film, shame. But. I remember a bunch of friends and I got together and we had an actual, like, uh, I guess the equivalent of like an Oscar party uh, the year that Return of the King was up. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it it really was not that much of a nail-biter. It's like, after that was over, everybody was talking about how, well, obviously the Academy's going to hand them an award for all of it. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's like that thing they always used to say where it's like, the aging actor who's in his 80s and he's about to die and he's a great actor and he did this one last crappy little part, but they give him the Academy Award because really the Academy Award is for the rest of his career. Yeah. You know, and it's like, here's your award for, you know, still being alive. And and they they finished Lord of the Rings and it was like, well, they're not just giving the Academy Award for Return of the King. They're giving it because they ignored it for three years and it's this monumental achievement in filmmaking and now they're going to give them all the awards. And it was still exciting and fun and it was this moment where we all sat there and go, look, fantasy film is getting its just due on the Oscars. And, and uh, is that the last time that that's happened so far to date? I think. Oh, Shape of Water just won. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that was the first one since Return of the King that could be construed as a fantasy win of any kind. Yeah. So, yeah. Hey, horror hasn't won since, what, 91? I I just <laughs> saw one of like the big-name horror uh, guys online was just tweeting something saying, yeah, call me when they add a best horror <laughs> category. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that'll happen. Best zombie. That's, <laughs> uh, that's what the technical awards are for. Yeah. That's the technical best, awards. Best, best makeup, you just go, you'll, we'll just shove you over in this corner over here, best makeup. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, there was a really big push for uh, best, like, best stunt coordination. Um, so, like, yeah. the, stunt, the stunt actor union um, was trying to, trying to get an Academy Award category 
of their own. And then Matt was like, nah, you get yeah. back over there. Yep. And that's then, I mean, it's not as much now as it used to be, although I'm sure there's still plenty happening, but that's some extraordinary work and, and lots of people have risked their lives, you know, for making entertainment and all this time they've had no award to call their own. Yeah. The, these film, these awards are for the films that came out last year. Is that what I'm getting at? Or is it for the films that came so out? Anything yeah. That came out. I want to say like, after the um, the awards were announced last year, which I think was like sometime either like January or February, and then through up until about December, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, is when. So if you're looking at like Get Out, I think Get Out is on. Was this? It, it was nominated. Yeah, it was nominated this past year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was I think up it, for best picture. did it win for director? I think it ran. I think it won for screenplay. Screenplay, that's what it was. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Because Guillermo del Toro won for, uh, for director, director. Yeah, for director. Yeah. I, I knew Jordan Peele got something. See, Oscars, uh, Hollywood doesn't hate um, immigrants, or else Guillermo del Toro wouldn't have won. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that solves everything. I know. Racism, racism is, is over. Fixed. Yeah. Now we can just yeah, go back to, to having over. white people win everything for yeah. the next fifty years. We need to retroactively give La La Land an Oscar. <laughs> Uh, that's what needs to happen. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> all right. I I think we're we're getting kind of close to the end here. You guys don't want to talk about Alex Jones? Oh yeah. Or is the the boon? Pour pour one out for our homie Alex Jones, banned from a out in 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 Facebook jail. And YouTube. And YouTube. And banned from YouTube. Banned from YouTube. Which, banned what from will Facebook. all the neckbeards do now? I'm really nervous though, because like well, we listen, we watch um. Internet comment etiquette. What will he do now? That's true. Yeah. What will no Alex Jones? <laughs> oh, there's still Alex Jones. Just, just not on YouTube. It's not on YouTube. Just not on YouTube. It's just uh, on Twitter. Who yeah. refuses to to take action? Thank you, thank you to Twitter for not bending down to these <laughs> Antifa. The globalists. The globalists. They they are firmly the the, the defenders of free speech. <laughs> thank you, Twitter. Although I think my favorite 140 thing 140 characters for the first amendment. But, okay, I'm sorry. I'll I think, stop now. I think my favorite thing to come out of this whole thing are the edits that put Alex Jones in Space Ghost Coast to Coast. <laughs> Those are pretty good. Uh, what do you have any takes on this or anything you want to No, not particularly. I I I would hope that I'd hope that the fact that we see things like this happen or some indication that no matter how depressing or sad things seem sometimes that there's still the possibility of being able to win and sort of like the war against ignorance but um i also like reserve you know there's the possibility that he'll easily find some other avenues for for this particular brand of garbage but you know but it's nice to see it happen when it happens it's nice to see you know, companies for whatever reason, and I'm sure it's not for any good one, but at least they did, you know, a good thing for whatever, you know, reason they had. And it's also continually mind-numbing to see how none of those people have any understanding of what freedom of speech and the First Amendment means. Yeah. But, um, but you know, just uh, keep plugging away and hope that sanity prevails. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just let this be a lesson to everyone else out there that you can get away with saying literally everything else that you want, 
But if you think that drag queens will be burned alive, some people will think that's a line you can't cross. <laughs> All right. Uh, are we out? I think I think we've kind of uh, run run our course of things to talk about. Do you have anything else you want to kind of talk about? No, not particularly. I just I had a wonderful time chatting with all of you, and I'm I'm uh, happy that you had me on the show. And if anybody is listening that's interested in uh, all the things that I ranted about, they can find <laughs> me online on Twitter at Doctor of the Dead, and you can also check out atbpublishing.com. Awesome. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you once again. Um, you are very welcome. Okay. So, my name is Alex. I'm Nick. And I'm Elise. And, and this has been Some Nerds Have a Podcast. Yeah. All right, good night, everybody. Thank you.